What a joy and privilege it is to open God's Word and turn to the book of Acts. It is a privilege, although we've been preaching out of Acts a long time, right? To be able to open the Scripture and in particular to be able to focus on this particular text of Scripture this morning. The sermon is really part two. If you will remember when we dealt with Acts 11, 19 through 30, we talked about a disciple-making church. And that church, in that church, we saw the sovereignty of God at work in effective evangelism. We saw dynamic discipleship taking place with Barnabas uh, teaching them. And, and then Barnabas thinking, well, there's a part of giftedness that the body needs that I'm not capable of doing. So he goes and gets Saul in Tarsus. He brings him to the church. And they're teaching dynamic discipleship. So effective evangelism led by the sovereignty of God. Dynamic discipleship. And then remember, it was a church of generosity. Because they took up an offering to help the famine that was taking place in Judea. That's a good looking church, isn't it? That's a good start of a disciple making church. Well, in chapter 13, uh, we've kind of had a, a parentheses given in chapter 12 of what God was doing. And then in chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, we are reintroduced to the church of Antioch and what God is doing. So this is really part two of a disciple-making church. And we're going to see three additional things that are prevalent in this particular church. Acts chapter 13, let's read the word together. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping and, the, and worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they were sent off. They sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue to the Jews. And they had, and they had John to assist them. In Acts 13, missionaries are sent out intentionally... And it's evidence that the church is beginning to grasp the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. This is the first time where the missionaries are sent out from a church. And in this particular time, it's not because of persecution. They're not scattered because of persecution. In this particular time, this church plant, Antioch, is sending forth missionaries like the song you just sang, to the coastlands and the islands. Why? Because that's exactly what they're going to do. Isaiah, in Isaiah, it says, I'll give to you the nations. And who is that speaking to? It's talking about Jesus having the nations. And Isaiah refers to many times the gospel being carried to the coastlands and to the islands. And so, at this point, Acts 13, we are at, on the brink of a breakthrough in world mission. Notice I didn't say missions. Why? Because it's singular. 
we have but one mission. That Jesus Christ and His glory were renowned to the nations through making disciples. That's one mission. Now, you can call it missions if you want to, but ultimately, Jesus gave us a command. He gave it to the church, and it, is involving, it involves a global mission. Acts 13 is the beginning of what we might say is the fourth phase of Acts 1-8. Remember? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's the fourth phase. So in our passage, we see the Spirit of God and the church of God converge on world mission. That's what the church is supposed to do, right? We're supposed to merge and converge with the Lord of glory, with His mission, and the church is to be obedient to that message, message and mission. So this passage, needless to say, I think I've said this a lot in Acts, but it's critical for the local church, isn't it? To think about Acts 13 and what it means. Antioch was a church plant. Remember the story? God sends and scatters the church from Stephen's martyrdom. And many of them go to Antioch. And in Antioch, that's a church plant. There was no church there. Uh, the Bible tells us that some unnamed people began to share Jesus with people that were not Jewish. Isn't that awesome? And from that, those unnamed people, God plants a church. And it's in a city that's the third most important city in all of the Roman Empire. 500,000 people, multi-ethnic, multicultural, many colored. Uh, we, we went through some of the ethnic groups that would have been there. But it was also extremely morally tolerant and morally corrupt. Isn't it just like our God to put a church right in the middle of that kind of area? Right in the middle of pagan, the pagan center. One of the pagan centers in all of Rome. You remember that analogy of uh, the Romans said when their civilization started tanking, getting so bad, they said we must be getting the waters down from Antioch. So it's a bad place. But God puts the light of the gospel right in Antioch. And God begins to plant a missionary church in a place that's not sacred space to the Jews. It's not in Jerusalem, but it's in Antioch. And from Antioch, God begins to put the epicenter of all world missions. You would not be sitting here today had it not been for that. Isn't that awesome to consider? Daryl Box says of this church, this summary could hardly do a better job of showing a vibrant church at work. We have to stop and ask ourselves when we look at this model, are we a vibrant church at work? Are we? That's a good statement. So this is a model, disciple-making church. I want to pick up three components that we see directly from this text. The first thing I want you to do is reflect upon the diversity of church leadership. See it in verse 1? See all those names? Did you notice something? They're not all Jews. They're not all goim, which means Gentiles. There's a diversity of leadership in this church. Not to read the names again, but consider that they were in the church in Antioch, prophets and teachers. Do you know, for a church to be a disciple-making church, it must have good leadership. There's no question, not only do you need good leadership, but you need diversity of leadership. And he's very specific in giving those names. Now, he's not specific in telling us what it means in the sense of the word, uh, for prophets and teachers. He could be referring to a broader sense of the pastor-teacher who's instructing by preaching the Word. 
Or in a narrow sense, he could be speaking of what Agapus did. Remember? Uh, in chapter 11, when he stands and says there's a famine in Judea, God told him that. So that was more by direct prophetic utterance given to him. We don't know exactly what word or what aspect that Peter that uh, Luke is referring to at this point. But the fact of the matter is, there's an emphasis upon exhorting and proclaiming the word in the local church. That's what's going on. There's prophets and there's teachers. There were also teachers, and there was a critical role of teaching the Word in the building up of the body of Christ. We saw this in Acts 11, 19 through 30, where Barnabas was teaching the Word, where he went and got Paul and brought him back to teach the Word. And so they were exhorting the saints to continue in the faith. Something was lacking. Barnabas goes out, gets Saul, Paul brings him back. And Paul begins to preach the word. And it was essential for the building up of the church. Luke says there, was some, there were well-equipped leadership, prophets and teachers. Now stop for a moment to reflect upon this diversity of leadership. One writer calls them the Antioch Five. Not the Jackson Five, Right? But one writer calls them the Antioch Five. There was no question that these guys held a position of being elders, plural. There was a plurality of eldership in this particular text, and they were leading. And so we learn of Barnabas, who was a Cyprian Jewish believer. We learn that from chapter 4, verse 36. We've got Simon, who was called Niger. His name in Latin actually means dark or black. He was from North Africa, and some scholars believe he could have been Simon the Cyrene who actually carried the cross of Jesus Christ. There's some good arguments for that. The fact is, you also have Lucius of Cyrene, from which would be modern-day Libya today. And then you have Manian, and check this guy out. Where did he come from? The social elite club. You know, God can save anybody, anywhere, anytime, even if they are good buddies with Herod, right? And so he is saved, and he's from the king's court. And then finally, with no description at all, you see the word Saul. No description. Uh, we've been introduced to him. And of course, what a variety. You've got Jerusalem Jews like Barnabas and Paul. With Paul, you've got the Pharisee of Pharisees. And then you have other nationalities, someone of the household of Herod. You've got leadership that reflected the church membership. Don't you think there were people out in that community who came to faith in Christ and when they came to the church of Antioch, they could have said, you know what, uh, I've got someone who relates to me. I have some leadership in the church of my nationality. And this was extremely important for a church in that kind of community with over a half a million people and them seeking to win them to faith in Christ and then plug them into the church body. And here we see this incredible diversity of church leadership. Barnabas, again, uh, Paul, it would have been easy for them to say, well, these guys are straight from Jerusalem. Or it would have been easy for them to say, these are going somewhere off in Antioch. What kind of relationship do we have with them? But being saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we have one salvation, one God, one faith, one Lord. And God brought them together in this particular situation. It also meant there was a variety of gifts do you think these guys ever saw anything differently? We never do that on our staff, do we, David? 
Blake, we don't, we don't ever see anything differently, right? Yeah, we do. Uh, we, we're not always going to agree on every aspect of decisions we should make and direction we should take. Well, of course, if we miss that, we've missed the word, right? Primarily. But this leadership, it's, uh, just think about it. The concept of worldwide mission was born out of a diversity of people. Nobody was, they were not all the same. They were different people. And yet God was working in the midst of these people for worldwide mission like none other in the history of the world. The first, most famous international mission plant is this church you're reading about. And it came forth out of a diversity of leadership. Not everybody was the same. and God used it mightily. It's pretty obvious, obvious that the ascended Christ who was in glory had given gifts to the church. To be, a, to be used for His glory. Uh, you didn't have one guy looking at another and said, I ought to do your job and you should do my job and you should have this gift and I should have this gift. No, God brought those gifts together with diversity in order to accomplish His purposes. Pastors, teachers, prophets. The church was benefiting mightily. Isn't it kind of interesting that, that we began to do what God wants us to do when we obey what God has asked us to do in His Word? To have that kind of leadership and diversity and to focus on what God would have us to do. So a disciple-making church will have diversity of leadership that seeks to honor God and leads the church in the direction that God would have it to go in. No agendizing, uh, no self-seeking. We ask God to lead us. We do it by and through the Word of God and the Word of God alone. Second... Worship and expectant prayer fueled the mission. Don't you find this fascinating? Luke tells us that this robust and healthy church is going through the practice. Now listen to this. While they were worshiping the Lord. Now this is interesting. One definition of it in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, it renders this more of a priestly service. And that's why if you've got the New King James Version, it will say, ministered to the Lord. I like that term. Now this says in ESV, they worship the Lord. It's the same thing, but the fact is, they're drawing upon a priestly word. As a priest would go in and render service before the Lord. That's exactly the terminology that we might say that Luke and Paul baptizes an Old Testament word and brings it over to the New Testament. And it's the word, ministered to, rendered unto the Lord for service. And the ESV picks it up in the translation and says, worship, worshiping the Lord. So Luke uses in here a term of duty. And here it is. It's public, corporate worship. That's what's going on. They're coming together and worshiping the Lord God corporately and publicly. Is that kind of like what we're doing today? Is there a precedent for what we do today in an age where people say the church is unimportant and you don't have to go to church and it doesn't matter if you're a part of a church, right? You can be just as much a part of a church out on the ninth hole today hitting your golf ball like Tiger Woods as you can sitting inside of a building. Good Hebrew word for that is baloney, right? The Bible teaches you you don't belong to, in belonging to Jesus, you belong to a church body. That's the clear teaching of the Bible. So they're coming together and they're worshiping the Lord. What can we assume? 
Well, they're engaged in public worship. They're reading the Word. They're praying. They're singing. They're preaching the Word. They're fellowshipping together. They're practicing the ordinances of the church that Jesus left, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Luke is speaking of the entire spectrum, ministering unto the Lord of Christian worship. And then the text also says they were fasting. For some of us, we look at fasting and we think, well, that's just an Old Testament duty. It's kind of funny that the early church, early on, is engaged not only in praying, but also in fasting. Immediately, I feel a sense of conviction because I don't do too well with fasting. Not because I can't do it, it's because I don't do it. And from the looks of some of you around here, you haven't been fasting a whole lot either. (laughs) What I mean by that is that you're fed up, right? You're all fed and happy and smiling, right? Jesus will address fasting, and he'll say it like this, and when you fast. Now, what does that mean to y'all? That you should be in the process at times in life of fasting. And that's what they're engaged in doing. You know what fasting is? It's an indication that you hunger for God more than you hunger for food. It's an intensifier of the value of who Jesus Christ is, much like the gifts given uh, by the wise men at the, to Jesus Christ, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. God doesn't need that. Uh, you, you, don't go, you don't fast because you think, well, God, if I fast and ask you, you're going to give me what I want. God's not bribed, folks. Bribery will not work. In, fasting is an intensifier to show the Lord that you love Him more than things. Whether it be gold, frankincense, and myrrh, or food, you love God. He's of more value than anything else in life. God, I desire you more than I desire food. So it was a a demonstration of the fact that they were seeking God, and seeking God more than they would seek anything else. Now I have a suspicion that their prayers were missionary prayers. Wouldn't you think so? Father, you sent the light of the gospel to a pagan place like Antioch and resurrected our hearts. You've asked us to go and make disciples. You told us to take the gospel to the nations. Now, God, would you raise up people among us that will take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Don't you all think that was the kind of praying that they prayed? The prayers that they were praying? You've commissioned us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, Father, would you be pleased with your spirit to pick some of us up and send us out? Do you notice something awesome about this text? It is the fact that mission grew out of worshiping and serving the Lord. Isn't that awesome? That it, do you remember the point, by the way? I didn't make that right. That, that mission, the mission, uh, is fueled uh, through worship and expectant prayer. And that's what the church was doing. They were not sitting in the church with a two-by-four, hitting one another over the head with a guilt trip, saying, we got to do something about the lost people in the world. And, and putting people on guilt trips. That's not what happened. They were born-again believers engaged in worshiping the king with fasting and expectant prayer, and the God of the universe stirred their affections for Him. Folks, the number one thing to stir your affections for, the, for Jesus being taken to the nations is the fact that you see Him as all supreme in your own life. What greater benefit, what greater motivation to take Him to the ends of the earth than for the fact that He alone is your God?
That He belongs to, that you belong to Him, that you want all glory to be given to Him. And we do that by worshiping. When we worship Him for who He is, He stirs our affections. And we want the world to know Him. He rules the world, correct? He does. So we want the world to know Him. So the mission, emphasis, grew out of community worship, praying and serving God. Authentic worship stirs the heart and gives us a desire to want to take Jesus to the ends of the earth. It worship fuels the mission. We are to have such a vision of the exalted Christ that we want His glory to spread among the nations. That's our goal. We need to seek the glory of the Lord. And seek the Lord of the harvest to thrust forth, to send out. We don't just come in here to worship to feel good. I mean, I hope you like singing. And I hope you like David's song selection together with me because we talk about these. We, we hope that it adds to the thematic presentation of the Word. But folks, if you think that church life is just about coming in here and singing a song, you've missed it. Worship doesn't end with the preaching. It doesn't end with the singing. We ought to worship and then turn right around and say, God, the Lord of the harvest, what do you want me to do? It's not just to sit and soak. And say, well, I'll just... What's the next series the preacher's going to preach? What's the next thing you're going to preach? No, folks, you should respond. When you have truly worshipped the King, the God of the universe, the, the natural correct response is to say, now God... We belong to you. What is it that you would have your people do? And that's how they're praying. So we know prayer is the lifeblood of the church, don't we? We know that preaching is indispensable in the life of the church. We know that worship is important. We want to be consumed with the things of God. We want God to stir our hearts. But is it not the corporate life of prayer? That is the, the life, the lifeblood of the church. Any amens? You know why? we probably don't respond amen quickly on that one because we're all guilty of not praying. We're all that way. I mean, and the amazing thing about Scripture is we're never condemned for not praying, but we sure are encouraged. We sure are encouraged numerous times. The disciples said that, oh, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? And we should be asking and saying the same things. Out of the preaching and out of the worship, our hearts should be stirred to seek the Lord of the harvest. To pray and ask the Lord to work. We need to set aside specific times to pray and fast. I think that ought to be a mark of a disciple-making church. When the Spirit of God is about to do something, He sets His church to pray. Look back over church history. When God is about to do something, He sets His church to praying. He gives us a hunger for Him. Father, we are willing to skip a meal in order to face, to come to you, before you, seek your face, and to pray. We're willing to go without food or a meal for a day, whatever that might be, or an hour, hour to pray. In this context of worship, prayer and fasting took place, and God gave direction. Is anybody listening? They were worshiping and praying, and it fueled the mission and... It was out of the praying and fasting and seeking the face of the Lord that God gave direction. Is there anything our church can learn from this? Is there anything you can learn individually from this? I think we can. Let me challenge you, and I'm challenging myself. What about just one hour a month where we skip a meal 
And we spend that time seeking the face of our God and asking Him to work to take the gospel to the nations. Or, or even in our community. Or even in your life. How about that, folks? Can we do that? I know in America we like to eat. There's one sure way that I could probably get you to do this. Provide a potluck meal. <laughs> All you Baptists will come for that, right? What if we did a potluck and we had no food? And we just sat down and prayed. Fasted for one hour. You know, God may be turning the wheels of some of you who have some D-groups that you're working with and pouring into people. Maybe this issue of fasting, like God has cracked my skull with it, on fasting maybe something that we all as a church body need to think about. It was worship and expectant, expectant prayer and fasting where God fueled the mission. Might He fuel us through the same kind of seeking of His face and saying no to a few things not because we want to make ourselves super spiritual. That doesn't mean anything to the Lord. He knows your heart. But it's because we want to have an intense hunger for Him more than anything else in life. Finally, the Spirit of God gave the Word and the congregation sent and supported the missionaries. Notice how this works. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Who said this? God said it. The Holy Spirit set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And then we learn of the Holy Spirit sending. We learn that they go to a port, Seleucia, getting ready to sail out to Cyprus. And so here, here the Spirit of God gives the word. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And then the congregation sent them and supported them. The Spirit of God spoke directly. You know, I was fascinated with this. He doesn't say, set apart for me the least important in the church. Isn't it kind of fascinating that he chooses Saul and Barnabas? Do you think the people love them? Paul has been there preaching a long time at this point. Barnabas has been there even longer, teaching the word. And... You have to know they meant something to this body. Uh, would the congregation not look to them as leaders? As leaders among the leaders. There's no question about that. But I want to remind you the church was not left without ministers. The church was not left without a pastor, shepherd, to teach the word and shepherd the people. But it's interesting that he chose the two most gifted people in the entire church to go do this work unmistakable from the text of Scripture. You say, well, he's the Apostle Paul. And that was Barnabas. Well, I don't think you can just say that uh, at all. Even though Paul was told by Christ, you're going to suffer much and you're going to be a witness to the Gentiles, still, God has his local church that he loves and he picks up two of the most gifted in the church and moves them to establish another church. What an awesome work. I'm not going anywhere, folks. Don't be scared, okay? I'm just telling you, that's exactly how he's working here. God is working. The sovereign, resurrected, ascended Christ is taking the gifts that he gives to his church and he's dispersing them out so that the gospel is going to reach the nations. That sounds like a novel idea, doesn't it? Because that's exactly what takes place in the Word. Advancement of the kingdom. He does this through a worshiping and praying and fasting church. You notice, even when they get the Word, set apart Saul and Bar Barnabas and, and 
Paul, they still fasted and prayed more. They didn't just say, well, that's over. You guys are out of here. Catch the first boat out of, out of Seleucia. No. You know why? Because they know the Lord's work's not over. The missionaries are being sent out. We don't know what's going to happen to Paul. and Bar- They may not ever come back. We're going to pray about God's direction for them. We're going to pray that God's hand's upon them. We're going to pray they're going to be faithful to Christ. And so here was a church that not only prayed and got the answer, but they continued to pray after they had the answer, right? They prayed for kingdom advance. What should our response be to this directive? God, do a work among us to prepare us for your work. It wasn't simply a matter that Paul and Barnabas were being sent on a vacation to, the, to an island on the Mediterranean. That's not what's going on here. It was sacrifice. It was a sacrifice for Paul and Barnabas, but it was also a sacrifice for the church of Antioch. They were sending out two people they love. These two guys have been used by God to teach them and to grow them. There would be a financial commitment. Oh my goodness, Baptists, right? Are y'all naive enough to think that Paul and Barnabas were sent out without any financial support? I mean, today in our world, we're like, they didn't need any money back then. They were good, right? They just, they could live off the ground. It didn't really matter. No, folks, the church sacrificed to send these two men. They sacrificed just like they did in Acts 11, 19 through 30 in the offering for relief for those in the famine. They supported these guys in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So when we ask you to give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and you respond by giving $45,000, we say, Amen! But we don't stop there, do we? We, we put our heart, uh, we put our missionary heart that is converging with our God's heart and we say, you know what? Everybody can't be going down in the well. Not everybody can go down in the well, Mr. Jim, right? But we can all be rope holders. Amen? Somebody's got to hold the rope. And we need to be both of those. We need to be a goer or a sender or a disobedient person. Well, that's not fair, preacher. Well, I don't care. Right? You're either a goer. When it comes to the Great Commission and taking the gospel to the nations, you're either a goer a sender, or you're disobedient. I don't apologize for that. Not after you read the Word. Not after it's this Christ that you know that longs to save souls across the world, here and far off. And then the Bible says they lay hands on them. Some of you would like to lay hands on me today, right? Just to love me. <laughs> encourage me, right? But they laid hands on them. And again, this is an Old Testament connotation of the laying on of hands, but it has a different understanding for the most part. Not exactly, but there are nuances that are different in the New Testament. But let me give you at least two of those. The call of the Spirit was recognized by the church. You know, they were set aside by the Spirit of God spoke and said, set Paul and Barnabas aside for me. But the church recognized the Spirit's work in these individuals' lives. Now, Acts, uh, if you flip over to Acts 16, we see a great example of this. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. 
Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Now, it's not like that Timothy looked at the missionary journeys and he said, you know what, Paul's going to stop by Lystra and Derby in a few weeks, so I'm going to sign up on a legal pad out in the foyer that when he gets here, I'm going to go with him. Who is it that recognized the call in Timothy's life? No. Read the text. The brothers. The brothers in Lystra and Derby. What's that part of? The, there we go. We're moving somewhere. It's the church of the living God that saw in Timothy. Timothy, Paul comes in, preaches the word, and the brothers and the church say, you know what? Got this guy right here who's a disciple, and he needs to be going with you. He needs to be sent out with you. And Paul takes him. Paul wants him to go. I'm bringing about a point that the call of the Spirit was recognized by the church. The church said there's a young man among us. It's very similar of what Paul and Barnabas see, what they see in those two men. Paul will later tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, which is one of the wonderful disciple-making verses in the Bible, what I've entrusted to you, you commit to other men. In other words, mark out some men in that local church and pour your life into them. That sound like something we ought to be doing at our church? To mark some out among you, Timothy, just like I did to you, and teach them the Word of God. So this same Spirit that gives the man of God the call and the assurance that you're called by God. Are y'all listening? The same Spirit that gives the man that God calls the assurance that he is God called also gives the church the assurance that that man or woman is God called. There, they're working together. That's, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? You know, that's exactly what Jesus said in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. That it would be the church of a living God that God would use for His glory among the nations for all time. So, in a world where people say the church is dying, I've got news for you. The church is the only thing that won't die. The church is the only thing that will survive. It is the church of the living God. So, I want to remind you that this is critical teaching for our Lone Ranger Christianity that we see in the United States of America. Where people just run off and do their own thing and don't even think about the local church. As a matter of fact, if I'm reading this correctly and the Word, it's the church alone that is authorized to recognize the call and to commission those who are called into this world with the gospel. I'm not downplaying parachurch organizations. God can use them and has used parachurch organizations to accomplish great things. He can use them to, in execution of the Great Commission. Yet the Bible, the biblical pattern, is that local churches should be sending out missionaries for the cause of Christ and the gospel in this world. The church of the living God is the only organization in the Word of God that has been established by the Lord God to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's the only organization that God ever gave us in the Word to get His gospel to the ends of the earth. It is the vehicle for the redemption of the world. The church doesn't save anybody. But the Lord of the church saves every one of them, right? That do come to faith in Jesus Christ. So it, here we see the Spirit of God working in... Here we see the church of God working in concert with the Spirit of God. And folks, that's my prayer in this church. I mean, we got some gifted young people in this church. Hello? 
Y'all listening? We got gifted young people in this church who are great athletes. Their, their, their academic prowess is off the chart. Well, preacher, uh, what are you telling us? We ought to pray that the brightest and best we have enter the mission field for Jesus Christ. Don't, don't say that about my kid. Look, I don't mind saying it at all. If our children, including mine, can put another flag on the hill for Jesus Christ, it's worth it all. It's more important than any academic degree. It's more important than any sports activity. The most important thing that will last is your influence of Christ in this world. It's the only thing that's going to last. I hope you understand that, church family. It's the only thing when it's all said and done that's going to matter. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Fill in the blanks. Fill it in your way. For me to live as popularity and to die is to be forgotten. I'm telling you, you're going to be forgotten. For me to live is to gain a whole lot of money. And to die is to leave every bit of it with your sons and daughters. To spend as they want to. Right? Just fill it in. That's why Paul had this heartbeat. For me to live is Christ. My number one ambition in life is to honor Jesus. And my number one vision in life which is far better, according to Paul, is to be with Jesus Christ. So my encouragement to us, let's, be a, let, let's sync up with the Spirit of God. And as he calls people in this church, and I said young people, but it might be middle-aged people. And it, it may not be to a foreign country, but it very well. Look, everybody in this building, if you're saved, you're called to make an impact in this community. More so than thinking about your own life and about how you're going to succeed and what you're going to do next and the degrees you're going to get and what you're going to do after you get married. Those things are important, folks. But that's not the crucial thing of a God-called person. The crucial thing is, will your life count for Jesus Christ? Choose you this day, Joshua says, whom you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the call of the Spirit was recognized. Also, missionaries are directed by the Spirit and supported by the church. And my point there is that the praying and the fasting was a launching pad to push the missionaries forward. They came out of a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing, praying, fasting, loving God, worshiping God kind of church. And he sent the, they sent the missionaries out. Paul had a missionary strategy according to verse 5. What was it? He went to the synagogues. Why did he do that? Because it was a cultural bridge. He knew there would be more than just Jews there. There would be proselytes and God-fearers. And when he went in there and he showed how that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the old covenant, what happened? People got saved. And when people got saved, guess what they did? They went and started the church. And when they started the church, there was a beachhead of mission work in that area. That's how God always works. He just plants a church there. That's what we ought to be doing, Right? We ought to be praying that God will send our church to a place where the people have no voice, where they're not hearing the gospel. And we ought to pray that in our lifetime, God would plant a church in that area. Does anybody listen to this? We seriously should be praying in this way. One thing is very clear from the Scripture. God wants us to have a passion for the nations. And if we truly love Him, there's no way we can't have the desire that He has. For our community to come to Christ and for those around the world. And we say come to Christ, we may make disciples. There was a missionary named Adoniram Judson. How many of you have ever heard of him? Other than Mr. Jim. All right. No, seriously. Many of you have read about Adoniram Judson. He 
was on American soil. And when he was getting ready to go to Burma, he had this young girl that he loved. So her name was Nancy Ann Hazeltine. And what Adoniram does is he writes his sweetheart's father to ask for her hand in marriage. Well, folks, at this particular point, there were no white people in Burma. It was dangerous. We don't even know if any Americans had left American soil to be missionaries at the time Adoniram Judson left. So, boy, this was breaking ground, wasn't it? So, Judson writes a letter to Nancy, or Anne, as she's better known, and it says this to her father. Dear sir, I'm asking for your daughter's hand in marriage. And what that means is that you will probably never see your daughter again. We're going to a place that is violent and rough. The journey alone may be her last. So sir, if you give me your hand, her hand in marriage, know that you do so for the cause of Jesus Christ in Burma. And the father's response to Anne was, you make your own decision. She was 18 years old. By age 24, Nancy Judson was buried in Burma with two or three of her babies. You know, we all remember the story of Jim Elliott, right? And he coined the phrase, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, I wish it worked like this, but I wish we could ask Ann Judson, was it a sacrifice for her to marry Adoniram and move to Burma? I'm going to tell you what her response would be as she's rejoicing around the throne room of the king. Sacrifice? I did only what our God asked us to do for the nations. I submitted to my father's call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I would think that Nancy Ann Judson would say, what a privilege. What a privilege it is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. To take it to Burma, even though she lived five years. Uh, the shortness of the life has no indication of the impact for Christ. I think Nancy Judson had the posture of an Antioch church. Servant of the Lord. My prayer is that God will baptize me and you with the same spirit that the church of Antioch had. We could take it. Could we not? Now think about this for a moment. How this church looked and we're done. They had a church that knew that effective evangelism was in the hands of a sovereign God. He saves his people. There was dynamic discipleship and teaching going on in that church. There was awesome generosity and giving. No one grabbed onto their wallet too tightly. They were willing to give and support. And then this disciple-making church had diversity of church leadership, all under the umbrella of honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. Then this church was marked by worship and prayer and fasting, expectant prayer and fasting. And then here was a church that listened to the Spirit of God and called missionaries and sent them out. That's a good church, isn't it? That's a good church. That's a model, disciple-making church. So what we need to be, be at First Baptist Church Ozark. Can all God's people say amen? amen? All right. Father, we want to thank you for your word. God, thank you for the conviction on my soul this week. God, we are so so far away individually 
from being what you would have us to be. Father, we wave the flag of surrender. Lord, in our hearts to say to you, oh God, we, we may not take time to pray and to read your word and to fast, but God, would you give us a hunger to do those things? Even if we're not doing them, Lord, even if we're not willing, God, we pray you would make us willing. Lord, we're at your mercy. Any fruit that comes out of our lives comes out of our direct union with you. We can't produce fruit on our own. Apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing. God, would you make us a fruitful church? We don't want to beat people over the head with, with, with sad feelings of swollen bellies that we see on a video and, and, and malnutrition. God, there's a place for those things. But Lord, that's not the motivating factor. The motivating factor is that we belong to the King of Kings. We want your glory uh, to be all over this world. We want it to be preached and taught. We want others to know the same Lord that we know. We want others to have the joy of knowing Jesus. You are the King. God, would you help us as a church? Lord, would you put into the hearts of men and women in this church a desire to spend some time in prayer and fasting for your work that you desire to accomplish in their life and in this church's life? God, would you raise up young men and women to the foreign mission field? The best and the brightest and the most gifted. God, would you raise up people out of this church into the gospel ministry to do that work in this community and in the United States of America, in North America. And Lord, would you help all of us as individuals, even if we're rope holders, to hold that rope with a vision that we want you to be announced and proclaimed among all the people of the world. God, would you help us with that? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.